Blog Talk Radio. Are you ready to take a bite out of the competition? Are you looking for ideas to make your business better? Welcome to the Core Business Show with Tim GK, sponsored by Apple Capital Group. At the core of every successful business, you'll find people making a difference. And with each episode of the Core Business Show, we talk with those people, examine those ideas, and explore the strategies that make them special. Now, the host of the Core Business Show, Tim Jacquet. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Core Business Show. I'm Tim Jacquet, your host. Today, I have the pleasure of having Father Jan Michael Giants. He is on the show today. He's going to talk about his career, his music, his education, and his musical styles. If you'd like to join the conversation, please call in at 347-324-3460. Or you can go ahead and pose a question in the chat room. Or you can go ahead and email us at info at the Core Business Show. Well, Father, welcome to the program. Thanks. I guess to begin with, kind of tell us about our listeners love personal stories from composers and artists. Kind of tell us about what is your story? How did you actually get into, at the very beginning, into music? Oh, well, that's actually fairly easy. Uh, my mother was uh, trained as a lyric soprano uh, who pretty much gave up her career to raise the eight of us children. Uh, but she continued to sing at home, and so she'd hand on that kind of training to us. And my dad was in technical theater, so that gave us the opportunity, for example, to go to the Metropolitan Opera whenever it happened to be in town, and he was working as a stagehand. So those two influences were pretty strong growing up. Uh, Then secondly, I went off to uh, seminary education in ninth grade. Uh, So... Yep, way back when. So uh, that was uh, a chance to to really get uh, to learn the chant tradition of the Roman Catholic heritage and polyphony. And then finally, because I was growing up in the 60s, uh, this was a chance to learn a lot of the folk music tradition. So I think all three of those really came together, classical music, the chant heritage, and uh, some of the more popular music that was happening. Now you you grew up in uh you grew up in the Midwest? Yes, I'm a native of Minneapolis and have pretty much lived my whole life in the Twin Cities. Wow. And you're part of a, a particular order or Nope, I'm just a diocesan priest uh for St. Paul Minneapolis Archdiocese. Wow. Now when you went uh you mentioned something unique. During that particular time you say that you went to the seminary in the ninth grade. Things yeah, were yeah. much different during that time. Can you t- explain were, how right. different? Sure. Uh, in When I was growing up, which was just prior to our Second Vatican Council, uh, all of our worship well, in the Roman Rite was done in, in the Latin language, and our music was done all in chant. So, for example... Uh, I learned how to sing the uh, the funeral mass, what was called the Requiem Mass in those days, mm-hmm. all in Latin, as a second grader, and would sing that, you know, wow. being brought over to uh, to funerals early in the morning uh, before we started class as grade schoolers. Um, but while I was in high school, our, the Second Vatican Council was taking place, and it, uh, as one of its prescriptions 
opened up the possibility of church music in the Roman Rite to uh, vernacular singing, in this case, English. So uh, that opened up a great opportunity for um, new compositions uh, for church use that would be using the English language. Well, do you think we're missing something, part of that process back in those particular days and what we have today? Well, you know, we're 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 always in a process of of transformation. So mm-hmm. I think uh right now there is a movement among various church musicians to attempt to restore uh some of the glory of chant and some of the glory of uh, multiple voiced singing what we call polyphony. Uh the mm-hmm. question of course is always to see how that can be uh brought into uh intelligible worship because the council also called for what they said was full, conscious, and active participation of the faithful. So the hope was always that they would not only just sing these pieces as kind of museum pieces, but that they'd understand what they were singing and uh, see how it connected to their worship and to the rest of their lives. Wow. People are always talking about liturgical music and chant as a whole <laughs> Kind of tell us, uh, in a church view, uh, for people, what is considered liturgical music and suitable music for the liturgy? (laughs) As you might guess, that's a very disputed question. I know. Yeah, but I can actually answer uh, part of it without a lot of controversy. Uh, Mm -hmm. The term liturgical music, as opposed to, say, church music or spiritual music, liturgical music means very specifically music intended for public worship. Uh, According to the official uh, uh, services of a particular church, So since I'm Roman Catholic, when I speak of liturgical music for the Roman Catholic Church, and specifically in the Roman Rite, I'm getting real technical with you here, uh, I would mean mean music that would be associated with the celebration of the sacraments, the sacramentals, and the liturgy of the hours. So music for Mass, baptism, uh, confirmation, uh, anointing of the sick, that kind of stuff. Uh, celebrations of things like benediction of the Blessed Sacrament, and then finally uh, the daily office or the prayers that, that, uh, say, monks and nuns or priests uh, and deacons would pray, uh, morning prayer, midday prayer, evening prayer, what we used to call lauds and vespers, uh, Mm -hmm. that's uh, settings of psalms and canticles that, that we'd have as part of our daily prayer. And all of that would be liturgical music. Wow. How have we evolved from that particular time and the 60s to where we are today? I remember when I first picked up the book, Glory and Praise, and this is probably 1979, mm-hmm. in middle school, and the old congregants. Oh, you're of the very young. And <laughs> and the fellow musicians down the street and around the town said, oh, this is music. And it's really up to really from 80 to really start dying down to about 2000. They they consider the glory and praise stuff was stuff yeah. of the devil. Uh, and oh, it's just, oh. just recently, I've, recently it has died down uh, yeah. uh, from the ones who were there from the change and, and part of the yeah. old church. Yeah. 
tell us about this evolution of music because we have went through a huge evolution of music within the last uh, 30, 40 years. Yeah, yeah. Actually, a very, very short time for that amount of of change in our musical worship, and it's 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 cost a lot. Uh, that's I have to be honest. Uh, there are mm-hmm. some people who found that transition very, very difficult. So I think part of the reason why there is this desire to restore some chant and polyphony is precisely to make sure that we don't lose. Uh, part of the heritage. But I think it's easy to see that in the first years, maybe the first 10 to 15 years uh, after the council, so in the late 60s through the early 80s, uh, there were all sorts of experiments going on, including <clears throat> that that collection that you were talking about, uh, Glory mm-hmm. and Praise. And that uh, music tended to be uh, very simple, very singable, um, but patterned on um, maybe folk music, uh, almost hootenanny singing, uh, mm-hmm. where it would be uh, almost immediately accessible, easy for people to sing. But just as that folk music um, went out of style, I mean, people stopped listening to uh, Joan Baez and Peter, Paul, and Mary, except for you know devoted uh, listeners, uh, so too, that tended to go out of style within church music after a while. Um, anyway, it, the next wave became a little more sophisticated, and you had uh, uh, people who had had worked with that style becoming more sophisticated in terms of the text that they wrote and also the orchestration. It was no longer just a couple of guitars playing but maybe guitars and a bass and a piano and some woodwinds. And it was just much, much more sophisticated in the next 15 years or so. And then you got a new wave of of world music where that uh, style became um, increasingly um, over, not well connected to uh, music from different parts of the world. So uh, it might be have an English text but you could hear Spanish influences or influences from, say, South Africa. And all of that became picked, uh, became part of what church music could be, too. Now, I'm not saying that that swept every parish. Uh, admittedly, uh, some parishes, frankly, maintained only a, a, a chant or polyphony heritage. But other parishes were very open to uh, all sorts of new influences. And we're still figuring that out. Wow. What do you see the, the as the church itself today? Um, we have grown pretty much within the last 20 years. Most parishes, maybe 300 to 700 families. We're mm-hmm. now at at cities of 10,000. And I think the average now is, is coming to be around two or 3,000 families, which mm-hmm. you go back 30 years ago, that those were mega churches or huge churches at the time. Now we're reaching 10,000. What is going on with the church that we are just generating so many people uh, coming to the Catholic Church just within this last 15-year period? Hmm. Again, that's a really interesting question. Uh, You'd almost have to talk to someone uh, who's a sociologist of religion to get a real Mm -hmm. accurate thing on that, or a demographer, and I'm neither. (laughs) But uh, (laughs) I, I, I suspect... 
that um, that that it that's an issue for urban Catholicism uh, rather than rural areas. So, for example, uh, here in in the Twin Cities, we see that uh, kind of clustering of parishes happening in our urban area, and thus, say, some suburban parishes becoming almost megachurches, 2,000, 2,500 uh, families. But the rural places still retaining, you know, 150 to 200 families per parish. The real issue, if, if I'm reading this correctly, is our ordained leadership, as there are fewer and fewer priests per parishioners, um, and that proportion keeps um, shifting over time. Since there are fewer and fewer priests per people, um, uh, there will be more and more uh, people within a parish guided by a particular priest. That's that's really seems to be where the demographics is going. The second issue is as uh, there are waves of immigration happening in the United States, um, many, many Spanish-speaking folk and now folk from various Asian groups are uh, really entering uh, Roman Catholic heritage and or, you know, maintaining, like Spanish-speaking have had strong Roman Catholic heritage for centuries, but are entering into church life in the United States in a new way as immigrant groups are coming in. And that's swelling our numbers as well. So uh, I think those two two factors would be uh, something that's that's doing that. Well, talk about, let's go move back into education. So you're in academia um, yeah. and... Yeah. <laughs> And we thank you for the, uh, that comment. I think it really helps uh, trying to get a perspective on that. In education itself, the the church is real prolific when it comes to education um, mm-hmm. of its people and its clergy. What advice do you have for people, upcoming musicians and upcoming liturgists, to to seek out education and why they should seek it out? I mean, it's not covered by financial aid and oh, and. Yeah. Uh, that's one thing about it, but the church usually provides uh, get you there regardless. Uh, you just have to ask. But kind of talk about your education as a liturgist and a scholar, what you've been through, and how it impacted really your career and your life. Oh, okay, uh, right. Oh, well, I'm I'm going to pass over grade school and high school, <laughs> jump to jump to college. Uh, I went to the then College of St. Thomas here in St. Paul and uh, graduated with a B.A. in English because I really wanted a degree in humanities, but we didn't have one then, and English was the closest I could get to it. Uh, then after that, I went. I actually dropped out of the seminary system for a while and worked. And while I was doing that work, I put myself through a master's program in liturgical studies at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, That took about three or four summers to do, as I recall. And then uh, having that MA, I also then went back to the seminary system uh, because I, by that stage, felt that it was clearer that I had been called to be a priest. So I uh, picked up another master's degree as part of my seminary education in systematic theology. And then, once I got ordained and had worked in a parish for 
some years and also at a Newman Center, <clears throat> which is a um, Catholic um, center on a on a secular campus, university campus. My bishop uh, asked what I would like to do next, and I said I'd like to finish off my education with a doctorate if possible. So he agreed with that and sent me off to Rome for four years to study at uh, Sant'Anselmo, which is probably the the world center for liturgical studies uh, under Roman Catholic auspices. So I've been really lucky. I've had a lot, a lot of education. Uh, but what you hear in that is not a lot of training in music. That was separate Um so the advice I normally give to people about this is if you're a musician, get as much music training as you can, um, both academic and practical. If you're a liturgist, get training in three areas. You have to know the history of worship. You have to know the theology of worship. And then you have to know the very practical stuff, usually that you get from, from social science, about how to uh, work with people, how to work with symbol systems, uh, how to understand uh, people's reaction to changes in worship, because uh, your your task is to really help them uh, to appropriate all of this stuff in prayer. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, it does. I really appreciate the advice. Yeah. Uh, and talking to your career uh, regarding uh, over nearly 16 or over 16 albums altogether, um, yeah. kind of tell us about that journey with your musical career from uh, your first piece that you wrote and you got published uh, to something more recent. Oh, okay. It's actually kind of funny. Um, I did my first album way back when, when I was 18, uh, and frankly recorded it when I was still in high school. And it was part of that first wave we talked about. Uh, when I li- Fortunately, uh, there are no copies of it available for sale anymore. <laughs> and uh, the, the company that uh, uh, published it originally had a little financial hiccup, so it never got distributed very widely. Um, uh, because now listening to it, it kind of sounds like the mamas and the papas go to church. <laughs> it's just not very good. But <clears throat> what that meant was that for the next 10 years, I didn't publish anything. I wrote a lot and um, basically kept all these manuscripts um, uh, in an archive that the Sisters of St. Francis down in Rochester, Minnesota kept and people could get the manuscripts for the price of Xeroxing them. Uh, And after 10 years, that had really built up. So the sisters said, we think you should start publishing again. (laughs) So um, I fortunately got connected with a a company that was out in Phoenix at that stage, and uh, they took 12 of those uh, pieces, and we recorded them, and I've bounced among three um, liturgical music uh, uh, publishers ever since. I never wanted to be owned by any one publisher, so I like working with three different groups, even though I think that's sometimes hard for the people that want to buy this stuff because they never know you know, which publisher a particular um, uh, collection comes from. So I've just been been working ever since. 
from my late twenties until now. Well, tell us about your musical style. How do you define your music, uh, and how your music comes to you? Does it come in the middle of the night, or it, it, it all of a sudden it's a tune in your head and you just work it out, or it's just everything yeah. just flows? Yeah. Well, let me say the style one first, and then I'll talk about the other. The problem for me is that I have no style. I'm utterly eclectic. Um, <laughs> I, I think people, uh, you know, the 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 I will will write from a single line of melody with a simple guitar accompaniment, all the way up to you know a double choir SATB. Uh, plus a full orchestral accompaniment. It really depends on uh, what I'm trying to communicate, what the text is, what the occasion is that the piece is for. So I, I really write in a lot of different styles. Um, I, I would call them American lyric. Uh, and as I've said before, I, I tend to be influenced by the the folk revival but i'm also influenced by a lot of 20th century classical music so uh, people like benjamin Britten were uh, very important to me or rayfon williams some of those uh, classical composers uh, so style all over the map <laughs> hmm. then in, in terms of uh, the actual composition process i almost always start with the text um so it, whether it's a text directly taken from the liturgy or a poem, and then I just kind of live with that text for a while. Um, I try to imagine how that text would be used in a particular context for worship. So, for example, a Lamb of God text would be used in the Eucharistic liturgy during the breaking of the bread. So I try to write a musical setting that will help that text accompany that particular ritual action. And uh, the the actual melody then uh, kind of arises mysteriously. You're saying in the night, and that's accurate. I, I frequently write between about 11 o'clock at night and 2 in the morning. Uh, wow. That's after my work day as a teacher and a priest. So, you know, there's not a lot of phone calls then, and it's pretty quiet. So I get a chance to work then. Um, but honestly, the inspiration part of it is uh, maybe 5%, and the rest of it is just the hard work of working it through, thinking through the various permutations that you can uh, take a melodic material or a harmonic progression into. And that's the work of composition. Wow. What artists do you normally look up, uh, look towards or you like to not necessarily model because you have your own style, but in back in time, uh, as you're growing up or even today, who do you actually listen to as musicians or artists? Oh, yeah. That's very tough to say because I listen to all sorts of stuff uh, all the time. Um, are you thinking classical or are you thinking pop? Classical, thinking pop. Wow, okay. Country? Um, well, uh, classical, uh, well, the whole Baroque period with Bach and Handel being probably the biggest influences, the 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 so-called classical period with Mozart and, and Haydn are also really important to me for orchestration. 
Interestingly enough, the Romantics, um, you know, from Beethoven on, uh, I didn't, I loved them as a kid, but I haven't found them all that influential now. But the 20th century folks from Stravinsky on, probably my greatest influence was Bartok. I love Bartok. <laughs> Just, hmm. you know, I'm, I'm overwhelmed by his genius. And then listening to some contemporaries like uh, Adams and, and a few of the minimalists, uh, Goretzky and, and a few of those. So that's the classical side. Um, uh, oh, I, I, I listen to a lot of musical theater, and there uh, Stephen Sondheim just overwhelms me. His, uh, his ability to take fairly sophisticated musical uh, schemes and then connect them to really sophisticated language uh, and, and further a plot by doing it. I'm, I'm just in awe of Sondheim. And then uh, pop music, it's, again, it's all over the map. Um, you know, um, uh, probably the, the 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 folks I I find most interesting are folks like Joni Mitchell, or Paul Simon, or Sting, mm-hmm. uh, the these long term writers whose styles have changed over time, who seem uh, again lyrically really sophisticated, but also. Uh, musically, they just keep exploring. I mean, for Joni Mitchell to do an album with Charles Mingus just blows me away. You know, amazing, amazing artist. So those are the folks that I'm interested in. Okay. When you actually sit down and pen your, your title flight on Eagle's Wings and mm-hmm. uh, I Have Loved You, what were you? What went through your mind when those tunes were birthed? Oh, um well, actually, it's easier to talk about the situations in which they were raised. Wow. Uh, I, I Have Loved You was written for the Sisters of St. Francis down in Rochester for uh, uh, a gathering where all the sisters come back for what they call a chapter of mats, which is mm-hmm. like a, a giant uh, um, convention. Uh, and uh, one year, I knew that that was happening. I wanted to say thank you to them for uh, their generosity to me. And they uh, and originally, I wrote it all for women's voices, so you know they'd have this kind of lovely uh, three-part vocal harmony, and uh, they still sing it. So that's that's what the idea was behind that one. Uh, I have loved you was or, or excuse me on Eagle Swings was. Um, written when uh, I was visiting a friend of mine in uh, Washington, D.C., and we went out for dinner. When we came back, there was a message saying that his dad had had a heart attack. And uh, so we spent the evening talking. He went back to Omaha the next day, and I wrote the song between that day and the wake service for his dad, and it was first sung in Omaha for, for that wake service. So sometimes they, you know, sometimes it's like a, a, a very corporate thing, like with the Sisters of St. Francis. Sometimes it's very personal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it came to On Eagle's Wings that those, the introduction to verse one, I mean, to, from the verse to the chorus, yeah. how do you think of, uh, how you pull all of those three elements together? <laughs> well, well, you know, of course, that's a big problem, 
because I'm start. I'll be technical for a second. I'm starting on a on a suspension of a subdominant, which is really weird. And uh, the idea there was that the verses of that song would be sung by a cantor, and so I could write a much more sophisticated melodic line, assuming that the cantor would be a trained musician and all of that. And then the refrain is much more more straightforward it's it's a series of suspensions that are all very logical now on the other hand the 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 range of the refrain is really wide it's like an octave and a quarter it's as big as as the star spangled banner so but the idea was that the people would only sing the refrain and and the cantor would do all the sophisticated singing of the verses well lo and behold people ended up liking the song so you know, they end up singing the verses too, and I think it's always a little <laughs> tough for them to get it started because it really does just start uh, in a kind of odd, odd suspended place. But I liked that because that seemed to me to uh, to illustrate the text pretty well. It 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 brings you into the text in a kind of uh, uh, almost ambiguous way. And then you get the chorus coming in much more uh, straightforwardly. It's wow. almost like the verses are probing what the divine is, and then the the refrain comes in with a, a very strong uh, affirmation of faith. It is really, really amazing. This particular song has, besides to say, the song of the century, but you know, it's been it's been presented at the Oklahoma bombing, yeah. uh, 9/11. I remember. Uh, People were talking about it at Jackie uh, Kennedy's funeral, um, yeah. and this, this uh, one person, said, oh, the on Eagle's Wings guy. <laughs> <laughs> so that uh, and these were uh, uh, Protestants, and uh, that's what they known for. So it was kind of really unusual how it impacted a few incidents nationally. Uh, yeah. Had brought into the even the the, uh, the Protestant. Uh, uh, world. The last couple of questions regarding uh, vocations and health. And I guess we'll go to health first and then end with vocations and one last final question. You had a health scare uh, a few years ago. Can you tell us about the disease and your transition from there? Yeah, yeah. Well, that was 2003, uh, t- yeah, 2003, 2004. I pretty much lost that whole year. Uh, I came down with a neurological disorder called Guillaume-Barre syndrome, which is also sometimes called French polio. It's a very rare uh, syndrome. Uh, Basically, what it involved, it's an autoimmune thing where all of the sheathing of my peripheral nerves was stripped away. So um, in a very short period of time, I went from being a fairly active, healthy guy to someone who couldn't breathe on his own, couldn't swallow, couldn't eat. Uh, at one point, the only muscle, muscles I could uh, uh, control was one eye. I could blink. And that was enough for me to be able to communicate with an alphabet board. People would say, you know, first part of the alphabet or second, and I'd blink, and then they'd start saying letters, and I'd blink at the letter. Um but but that uh, malady uh, and the three years or three years excuse me three months in uh, a Mayo Clinic uh, 
getting my health back, and then another three months of outpatient uh, uh, therapy, and then another six months of just getting better uh, really taught me a lot. So um, I don't know what more you'd, you'd want to know about it, but it was it was a pretty intense experience. Wow. Uh, vocations, your initial calling. Thank you for, for that. Your yeah. calling itself, because a lot of people hear the calling, but they're scared to touch it. Because uh, mm-hmm. somebody say, I'm not sure I'm called or I'm called. Tell us about your calling uh, to the priesthood and what advice do you have for people who's like on the edge? They mm-hmm. know they've been called, but they can't listen because they have all this yeah. distraction around them. Yeah. That's a tough one. Uh, well, I'll say me first. I mean, the earliest I remember, serious, not seriously, but even thinking about being a priest was way back in second grade. But that was all just fantasy stuff. It's the same way a second grader might think of being a fireman or whatever. Um, uh, I tested it out, as I mentioned, you know, going into uh, high school and then a college seminary. But I wasn't at all sure at the end of college that this was what I was called to do, which is why I left and did some work. Uh, for me, um, the most important thing was was staying faithful to some level of prayer, uh, talking it over with uh, people I trusted, vocation directors and spiritual directors. But then ultimately it was about having people with whom I worked telling me that they thought they could see me doing this. Um, uh, You know, folks who uh, experienced me as a music director in their parish saying, we trust the way you think, we trust the way you pray, we trust the way you work with people. Uh, We can see you doing this. So um, that's what pushed me back into major seminary. And then from that point on, you're really in a process where the seminary and the diocese, or if you're an order priest, the order, uh, make some decisions along with you about whether or not you're called. So that's that's kind of my history. Um, what the advice I'd give is, is get in touch with a vocation director or a spiritual director and um, learn how to listen. You need a lot of silence for that. You need a lot of prayer for that. But learn how to listen and uh, uh, and share it with someone that you trust. Um, yeah, that's, I think, what I'd say. Okay. And then if moms, uh, when you break the news to mom and, and dad and grandpa and grandma and, and <laughs> they want their grandchildren, is there a closing statement you can give them? You can say, I am yeah. called. Yeah. Well, yeah, you, you can. But yeah, I don't think you have to make it that that severe. I mean, it... You you can certainly say you understand why, and and frankly I don't think it's it's parents so much that are uh, scared for you because they won't have grandchildren. I don't think it's it's that kind of selfish thing. It's they know how tough the life can be. They don't want to see you lonely. Uh, they know that that frequently priests can be. Uh, uh, really stressed um, uh, by people who have kind of overwhelming expectations of them that they can never meet. And they, I think parents sometimes just don't want you to go into a life where you will be lonely and you will be overstressed. 
Um, but then you you can you can talk with them about uh, there are all sorts of other dedicated folks to doctors and uh, social workers um, who who can live a life of service. Um, but yeah, the celibacy thing is also a big issue, and that's something you've got to be sure that you're also called to. So, okay. Last question: uh, How many yeah. years from now? Um, when I was speaking at the very beginning of the interview. How how you like to be remembered? <laughs> and is there a song that really speaks to you to yeah. say who you are? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, first of all, I'm not at all sure that 100 years from now any of my music is going to be remembered. I'm I'm just too much of a historian to recognize, you know, things come and go. Um, you know, an Isaac Watts hymn. You know, we know. A few of those, and we sing them regularly. But the guy wrote, you know, hundreds of them. So I'm not sure any of mine are going to going to last. If there were, if I had to pick one out of all the stuff I've written, it's a, a setting of uh, Psalm 139. Uh, you have searched me, and you know me. Uh, it's probably the the one I like the best. But it's also pretty sophisticated, and in some ways hard to hard to sing. So it's it's not the Eagle's Wings. Eagle's Wings is going to be more popular, but I'd rather be known for that. But frankly, I'd like to be less known as a musician and more known as a, a priest who was a uh, you know who was faithful to my calling, was a good college teacher, and and tried to tried to help people. Well said. I really appreciate you doing the interview and coming on the show to talk about your your music and your career. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. Okay. Take care. Yep. Bye bye. Bye bye. Again, that. Again, thank you for listening to the sh- the core business show. I'm sorry we didn't get a chance to take any breaks because uh, uh, because of the amount of time we're trying to get it done in 30 minutes. But anyway, everybody, thank you for listening to the core business show. I'm Tim J.K., your host. That was Father Jan Michael Jagas. Uh, composer, uh, liturgist. We're going to play one track of his and we'll be uh, back with the show.
Thank you for listening to The Core Business Show with Tim Jacquet. For a free quote on equipment leasing and financing, visit our website, applecapitalgroup.com. That's applecapitalgroup.com. And fill out the information to receive your free quote. We hope you'll join us for our next episode. And remember, you can always get to The Core via iTunes. You'll find all our previous episodes there. Thanks again for listening to The Core Business Show with Tim Jacquet.